0: Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin, and welcome back to my series on J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Last time we wrapped up Book 5, Chapter 4, The Siege of Gondor, and this week we're jumping ahead with Book 5, Chapter 5, The Ride of the Rohirrim. So as I've been saying, Book 5 is a bigger, better sequel to Book 3. In both cases, Tolkien jumps around in time and space from chapter to chapter, playing with information to provide a structure of tension and release for the audience. At the end of the last chapter, just when all hope seemed lost for the defenders of Minas Tirith, Pippin heard the horns of the Rohirrim echoing off the mountains. But wait, how'd that happen? We were told over and over again that the Riders of Rohan would come too late if they came at all. There's an army blocking the northern road into the city. So now this chapter has to flash back to fill in what happened. You can almost imagine a title card flashing on the screen two days earlier. Tolkien is playing his audience like a fiddle, delaying our gratification before providing it at the chapter's end. He ramped us up, and now he ramps us down, just so he can wrap us right back up again. Tolkien has the reputation as a fussy, self-indulgent writer, but everything in these chapters is designed to engage the audience on a gut level. It's a well-oiled machine, a blockbuster ahead of its time. The chapter starts by disorienting us. It's a dark night, and we can't see anything. Where are we? When are we? It's very different from The Muster of Rohan, the previous chapter with these characters where Tolkien started by telling us what was going on in the big picture, how this storyline was lining up with what was going on everywhere else. In this chapter, Tolkien wants to wrong-foot us, not only to create suspense, but also to ground us in how our POV Mary is feeling. As I said in The Muster of Rohan, he's the last of the Fellowship. He's lonely. He's trying to fit into a strange place with strange people. But the Rohirrim themselves have also passed out of their territory and are about to meet people strange to them. So the cultural home field advantage is lost. Drumbeats surround them. Mary hears them in the trees. Now that's designed to make us think of Moria, the drums in the deep, and make us worry that the Rohirrim have rode into a trap. Maybe it's that extra orc army on the northern road. And that's a great reversal of our expectations. There's an emphasis on sensory details, like when Mary was introduced... Like when Mary rode into Dunharrow. This time, it's not only to show the strangeness of this place to him, but to heighten our awareness in case there's an attack. Mary, just like Pippin at the start of the last chapter, is wondering why the hell he's here at all. He came along because he couldn't bear the shame of being left behind while all his other friends rode off to war, or worse. But that shame, like Denethor's pride, starts to seem abstract in face of the blunt realities of the situation. Merry is, quote, "'small, unwanted, and lonely,' comparing himself once more to baggage, just as he did in Book 3. Merry is exhausted, but too anxious to sleep. We've all been there. It's bad enough to feel this dread. It's even worse that there's nothing he can do about it. Merry wishes he still had Pippin at his side. Even when they were captured by the orcs in Book 3, they still had each other. That's the empathetic love that defines the hobbits. Merry now realizes that Pippin, far from taking part in exciting adventures with Gandalf, is trapped in the city. And Merry is not a brave rider who can blow a horn and save him. Ironically, this is exactly what's going to happen. Eowyn has that same desire, that desire to be the hero. And their waiting, in secret, will pay off big time during the battle itself. The only silver lining here is that Merry has not been caught by King Theoden who ordered him to stay behind. There seems to be some understanding, as Tolkien puts it, between Dernhelm and their captain, Elfhelm. The author quickly moves on from this, lest we get suspicious. Dernhelm is basically a non-entity in this chapter. He never spoke to anyone, Tolkien writes. The only action we see him take is creeping close enough to the king's guards for Merry to conveniently see and hear everything that's happening at the start of the battle. Both the author and Eowyn have an incentive to do no more than that. Tolkien doesn't want to give her away to the audience, and Eowyn doesn't want to give herself away to Theoden. Merry is such baggage that Elfhelm stumbles over him and thinks he's a tree root. Merry sticks up for himself, asserting his presence and personhood, as Pippin does when he defies Denethor. Merry lampshades the red herring when he worries that the drums belong to Sauron's armies. But Elfhelm tells us that this is not the case. It's the wild men of the woods, disturbed by what seems like the return of the dark years. Which Elfhelm says is, yeah, probably what's happening. These guys are definitely in need of a morale boost. So is Merry. But waiting around like baggage is more than he can bear, so he goes off to find out more. There's some great spooky atmosphere as he follows the last lantern through the shadow. A literalization of the Rohirrim as the last hope of surviving the night. Theoden and Eomer are meeting with Gonberigon, leader of the Druidane. They've been here since before the castles, as they say, before the Numenorians came out of the sea. And this really puts Denethor's arrogance into context, that he thinks his legacy, his history is the only important thing. It's older and more special than everyone else. Not according to these guys. And that's the advantage they offer. They know things other men have forgotten. That's what Lord of the Rings is all about, right? The weight of time living in the after days, as Legolas says. For Merry, the Druidane are payoff for the Pukomen, the statues he saw in the Muster of Rohan. There's this eerie, uncanny feeling for Merry, like one of those statues has been brought to life, following up on Gandalf being compared to a statue while defying the Witch King. But it's the other men who are myths to the Druidane. Tolkien wrote an essay about the Druidane that his son Christopher published in The Unfinished Tales of Numenor and Middle-earth. In the First Age, they came north and lived chiefly in the White Mountains. After the fall of Morgoth, some of them accompanied the Edain to Numenor, although they seem to have returned to Middle-earth before Numenor fell. Gonberigon talks about the Numenorians carving up the earth when they first arrived here, hunting it like beasts, acting like gods. They wondered if the Numenorians eat stone. And you know, it kind of seems like it. Minas Tirith is not a place of feasts and bounty these days. They're surviving on the walls, literally surviving on stone. The borders are blurring between story and reality, the representation and the real thing. And that's the inherent outcome of everyone getting outside themselves, confronting the other on their home turf. What binds them together is the common enemy, orcs, or Gorgon, as Gon calls them. Like Treebeard, the Druidain have been woken up from their slumber by orcish interference. This is a constant pattern in the Lord of the Rings. The enemy keeps screwing itself over by overreaching. Eomir will later say the shadow is, ironically, shielding them from being seen by that northern army on the road. Same with the orcs taking down the walls surrounding the city as they attacked. That ends up helping the Rehirim because it means they have no obstacles as they ride forth to the Pelennor fields. As Theoden said back in Book 3, Oft evil will, shall evil mar. Same irony applies to Gondor. Their collapse from the glory days, the fact that they aren't bustling around carving up the countryside as their ancestors did, has led to the road Gondorion takes them on being overgrown, and that shields the Rehirim from the orcs. In this way, the Druidane are also like Tom Bombadil. They come out of nowhere, help save the day, and then leave without ever being seen again in the story. They're also reminiscent of the dead, as in the paths of the dead, the ghosts that Aragorn is recruiting. There's that line, Ganbirigan says, dead men are not friends to living men and give them no gifts. Usually true, but not true in the case of those ghosts. And that's an interesting parallel. If you think about what's going on with Aragorn and the dead, his past is what qualifies him for the throne. That's what gets him his ghost army. But how Rohan and Theoden are interacting with the past, that's much more ambivalent. Tolkien makes clear that the wild men have been mistreated in the past, and it's interesting that Minas Tirith is delivered largely thanks to a ghost army who betrayed their leaders and a small group of men who have been betrayed themselves. It adds this note of the ambiguity and complexity into a scene that could otherwise easily be read as a standard clash of good and evil. There's a lot of different influences going on here in terms of how Tolkien writes the Druidane. He's probably drawing from native tribes of Africa and South America, the Rohirrim call them woodwoses, and Tolkien is probably drawing there from the old English word wuduwasa, a hairy, troll-like creature that inhabited the woods. The Druidane remind me also of the Wild Men of the Woods in Arthurian tales. The name Pukulmen also makes me think about Puck from Midsummer's Night Dream, that shrewd and knavish sprite, as Tolkien wrote, the Merry Wanderer of the Night. They line up with that archetype. There's also the influence of Gawain and the Green Knight, the Woodwoses of the wood. You could see an influence from C.S. Lewis, the wooses he mentions, given more attention than Lewis gave them. Now, there is definitely some noble savage stereotyping going on with the Druidane. Isn't it convenient that these men don't want anything but to be left alone? Go back to sleep in the woods, as Ganberigan says. That makes it so there's no hard choices to be made about who gets to control the land and what justice would look like. There's a contrast with the Dunlendings, the men who joined Saruman to fight the Rahirum. They were framed as the bad guys for wanting revenge on the Rehirim. The same Rehirim we are now learning hunted these wild men for sport. Worth noting that elves also hunted dwarves in the First Age, so these men are analogous to dwarves. Or you could say to hobbits, it's interesting to see them from Mary's POV. And this is a contradiction Tolkien never fully resolves. The story as a whole disdains conquerors, yet the victory of men is framed as, at worst, bittersweet, despite them being shown as conquerors themselves. Still, Tolkien challenges the notion of the wild men as beasts. He shows Ganbarigan as intelligent. There's the bit where he says the orc army on the road outnumbers the Rahirum, and Eomir is like, how do you know that? You can't possibly know how to count. I do think Tolkien is trying to call out that kind of dismissive bigotry by highlighting how wrong Eomir is. Ganbarigan puts it perfectly. We are free, but not children. Don't infantilize us. It's not that we are incapable of living like you do because we are somehow lesser. We choose not to. We choose freedom. And I love his poetic examples of what he chooses to count, stars and leaves. You can see him just lying back on the hill, counting those things, taking pleasure in communicating with nature. Again, a lot like the hobbits. But he's also very practical. He counted the Rohirrim as they arrived. As Theoden says, Ganberi Gan speaks all too shrewdly. Ganbaragon also speaks up for himself when Eomer interrupts to panic about Minas Tirith burning, the aggressive instinct that Tolkien critiques throughout the series, favoring the careful, cautious stewardship exemplified by characters like Ganbaragon. So the Druidain lead the Rahirim through the woods, skirting around the orc army on the northern road, so now we understand how it is they got to Minas Tirith. As Ganbaragon leaves, a light comes into his eyes and he cries, The wind is changing. Just like the rooster crowing in Minas Tirith, nature suddenly seems to be on our hero's side. It's their changing fortunes made literal, a banishing of the shadow by fresh air, which is connected of course to Aragorn, the scent of the sea that he brings with him, and which will call Frodo and Gandalf and Bilbo away at the end of the story. The scent of the wind changing is backed up by one of the Rohirrim, Widfara, establishing a cultural connection to the Druidane, that these men that seem so different actually have some similar backgrounds, some similar skills and interests. The morning will bring new things, he says, along with the passing away of the old, in Theoden's case. Mary again feels useless, but he won't be for long, and he's here for love, as he keeps thinking. He's imagining Pippin in peril, he wants to rescue him. That's that, that bond, that connection that keeps his story important, even though he's not in charge here. The Rahirums stream into the Pelennor fields, Tolkien describing them as a rising tide, natural imagery to match the changing wind. Along the way, they learn about the death of Hurgon, the messenger who brought them the Red Arrow. He never made it back to Denethor with the word that Theoden was on his way. It's a small thing, but a telling one, as it has contributed to Denethor's total loss of hope. It reminds me of the messages that don't make it through in Romeo and Juliet and how that causes disaster. There's a slow, suspenseful build-up, as the Rohirrim barely meet any resistance at first. We're waiting for the horns that we heard at the end of the last chapter, but it's always darkest before the dawn, so first we need a moment of doubt. Anguish and dread is how Tolkien puts it. Theoden looking on Sauron's huge army, looking at Minas Tirith burning. Merry thinks he looks suddenly ready to give up. And while Tolkien doesn't emphasize this here, it's interesting to note that this is actually a homecoming for Theoden. He was born and raised in Gondor before being called to the throne, because his father Fengal quarreled with his father and so went into exile in Gondor, before having to come back and reluctantly take the throne of Rohan when Theoden's grandfather died. And with that in mind, you can understand Theoden's urgency, his insistence on reckless speed, and his despair on seeing the city burn. This is where he grew up. But it's not even the opposing army that gets him. It's time the great theme of Lord of the Rings, how nothing we do can slow down time. Theoden is once again stricken by old age, as he was when we first met him. As Merry thinks, too late is worse than never, because we have to watch the failure, live with the knowledge that our efforts weren't good enough. As the wind changes and dawn arises, lightning strikes from the earth, we hear a big clapping sound, we know that's the downfall of the gate, Grand has broken through. Those two things go together, the dark and the light, this is where Theoden arises and becomes godly. He calls out louder than any mortal, Tolkien writes, blowing a horn blast so powerful he destroys the horn. And then he rides. Behind him his banner blew in the wind, white horse upon a field of green, but he outpaced it. After him thundered the knights of his house, but he was ever before them. Eomir rode there, the white horse tail on his helm floating in his speed, and the front of his first Eorid roared like a breaker foaming to the shore, but Theoden could not be overtaken. Fay he seemed, or the battle fury of his fathers ran like new fire in his veins, and he was born upon Snowman like a god of old, even as Orime the Great in the Battle of the Valar when the world was young. His golden shield was uncovered, and lo, it shone like an image of the sun." and the grass flamed into green about the white feet of his steed. This is the absolute best imagery in the series. Imagery so powerful it takes over your mind, like the words are about to ripple into images before your eyes. This is Tolkien directing his own movie adaptation. This is epic, immortal art. As the Rohirrim charge down the hill into their foes, there's lots of reference points you could point to that Tolkien might be drawing from. This could be Waterloo, this could be the Light Brigade. But really, the way it's written, this feels like Tolkien's ultimate tribute to Homer. It's, it's poetry. There's the repetition of and, the constant A but B sentence construction. There's even the alliterative poetry in the title of the chapter, The Ride of the Rohirrim. And that sense of, of mystical divine transformation applies to his men as well. The hosts of Mordor wailed, terror took them, and they fled and died, and the hoofs of wrath rode over them. And then all the host of Rohan burst into song, and they sang as they slew for the joy of battle was on them. And the sound of their singing that was fair and terrible came even to the city." I love that that contradiction, fair and terrible singing. Just like Galadriel described how she would be as a fair and terrible being if she got the ring, all would love her and despair, that great mixture of violence and joy. And it's a very pre-modern approach to warfare, When I think about the music of their battle and contrast it with a more modern, cynical perspective, like something like Apocalypse Now, when they're playing Ride of the Valkyries, they go into combat and it's supposed to show how they're not taking this seriously and they think of Slaughter as a game and isn't that awful. It's a little different perspective here. And it makes me think about how the music of the Valar is what makes the world. It's the literal foundation of this universe. And in a way, that's what the Rahiram are accessing. Their song is the very stuff of this universe, It's like they bring the sun with them, Tolkien's shields shining like the sun. They're rebooting the dawn. It's a dream of spring. So I've been wrapping up each of these Lord of the Rings episodes by talking a little bit about the movie adaptations from Peter Jackson and company that came out around 20 years ago, and how they handle each stretch of the material. This is maybe the best example of how the movie adaptations drastically simplified the source material, yet worked brilliantly on their own terms due to the filmmakers' understanding of how to make it work for their medium and audience. There's no Druidane in the movies, which is probably for the best, as it would throw off the pace, and given how the filmmakers handled the Southrons, I honestly can't imagine it being done well. Instead, Theoden just arrives. We see the army leave Rohan, and then we just see them show up in Gondor. And in both theatrical and extended cuts of Return of the King, they preserve that thrilling moment with the horns. I remember all the hairs on my arms standing up in the theater as Gandalf looks up with hope, Gothmog looks up with scorn and a little bit of fear. There's that beautiful lingering shot of the riders coming over the hill. As I've said before, the filmmakers are drawing from classic epics. It reminds me of Kagamusha, directed by Akira Kurosawa, that the, the, the beauty of all of these glittering armor and horses in motion. It's visually reminiscent of Eomir's arrival at Helm's Deep in the previous movie, but less purely hopeful. That grave look on Theoden's face as he stares at the army, mirrored in Eowyn's and Merry's, says it all. They're facing doom. But, as Eowyn says, Courage, Merry. Courage for our friends. It's the emotional heart of the books translated to screen. Giving it all for your comrades. A parallel to Aragorn's rallying cry at the Black Gate. For Frodo. And that makes for a contrast with Gothmog calling his soldiers maggots as he gets them into line. No such sense of a bond, a connection there. And there's really sharp editing back and forth, from Rohirrim spears to orc pikes. That strong pacing prevents the movie from just descending into CGI headache swarms. Theoden gets his big lines from the book about it being a sore day, a red day ere the sun rises... But something I like about the movies is how they move the badass speeches around to where they'll have the most effect in terms of cinematic tension and release. In the books, as I'll get to next time, Eomir cries death in response to discovering Eowyn lying motionless on the field of battle. It works extremely well. But in movie terms, it works so much better for Theoden to wrap up his big speech this way. Death, he cries. And death, all his men cry in response. And honestly... This is my gold standard for blockbuster movies. This is the moment I compare every other blockbuster to, and they all come up short. The absolute abandon of it. The fearlessness of nothing left to lose. The slight slow-mo on Miranda Otto as she howls death is just the perfect choice, capturing the battle fever as it takes hold of her. The king of the Golden Hall plays as they ride into death those glorious strings and horns. And I still giggle like a little kid as the orcs start retreating, understanding what they're dealing with. Mordor's weapon, as I've said, is fear. And as the Rohirrim ride into death, they are not afraid. So that is going to wrap us up this week for Lord of the Rings. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastASOIAF, where our patrons get early access exclusive episodes and a bunch more benefits. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastASOIAF, or shoot us an email at notacastASOIAF at gmail.com, and you can follow me at Quentin on Twitter. So as I announced recently, very sadly, Jeff is not going to be returning to the podcast. And while I'm very sad about that, I am happy that our good friend Manu is going to be joining the Nauticast as my new co-host. We're going to be starting A Song of Ace and Fire episodes up again in mid-August, so I'm going to do one more weekly Lord of the Rings episode next week, covering Book 5, Chapter 6, The Battle of the Pelennor Fields. After that, I'm going to keep the Lord of the Rings episodes going on a monthly basis. So starting with Book 5, Chapter 7 in September. And these episodes are only going to be for patrons. So if you're not a patron, but you've been listening along and enjoying these Lord of the Rings episodes, it's a great time to check out our Patreon so you can keep up with them going forward. So thanks again for listening, and I will see you next week for Book 5, Chapter 6 of The Lord of the Rings.